0: This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell and this episode is a continued exploration of the work of the man who wrote this. That was Paul Phillips conducting the Irish National Symphony with Michael Chertok on piano in a suite of music for Charlie Chaplin's film The Gold Rush, composed and orchestrated by our guest, former music director of the Museum of Modern Art and distinguished film composer William Perry. Welcome to episode 52 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. I'm co-producer Kerr Lockhart. If you haven't heard the first part of Ben's interview with Mr. Perry in episode 51, we urge you to listen to that first. Now here's Ben to introduce the second half of his interview. When I began
1: playing piano for silent films, back when I was a film student at NYU, and even to this day, the wonderful piano scores by William Perry that I had heard in the 1970s on The Silent Years on public television or what I had in the back of my mind as the benchmark or pinnacle of what I thought a silent film score is supposed to be. Perhaps you had the same experience and have fond memories of watching and discovering silent films in this series and hearing Bill's music. I'm thrilled to be able to share this interview with you so that you can hear Bill's theories about film accompaniment, film scoring, his memories and so that you can connect with somebody whose music you've admired and enjoyed for many, many years. In this second half of my interview with Bill Perry, Bill talks about his craft in terms of how he would preview films, research kinds of music to go with certain kinds of films, and being a collaborator of sorts with the audience. He'll share his memories of his friendship with Lillian Gish, and most importantly, he'll talk about how, even though he was playing piano, he thought orchestrally and how he would, in many years later, turn his piano scores into symphonic works. You may notice a small issue with the audio that happened during the recording, something we couldn't mix out. But What's kind of nice about it is that even though we were recording in Bill's living room, the echo you'll hear gives it the feel of our being in a hallowed marble hall.
0: As we rejoin the interview, Mr. Perry is recalling the early days at the Museum of Modern Art, as the richness and breadth of silent film started to become evident to curators
2: and scholars. In those those days, the film department, very active, they were discovering silent films. And, jeepers, uh, there were people in the film department, older older chap who had worked with Flaherty on Nanook of the North mm. and the Man of Erin. That's going back yeah. into the real history of yeah. Of, uh, of films and uh, um, it was that was a learning experience because uh, the department was learning and Paul Killiam was learning. We were all going through this in, in a in a time of a time of discovery. Yeah, it was definitely a time
1: when uh, it's, it's sort of what I think of like the late sixties and through the seventies uh, as the peak of the first real renaissance in popularity that, film, that silent film had. I mean, it had a dip in the 80s and then picked up again in the, the late 90s, but that period, uh, yeah. I think yeah. was a time when um, it would, there was a, a greater interest in silent film, when you were, especially when you were at, at MoMA. Now, how often did you get to pre-screen or preview the films at MoMA, or were you playing everything cold and then...
2: Not everything. Mm-hmm. Um... Uh, when a, a a new acquisition or a, a loan came in, the historic part of the film department, Cardish and others, wanted to see it uh, themselves. So we might have a screening. Oh, I see. Just the, to the curators get, as well. get, get we... to know the film, uh-huh. write the notes, the program sure. notes, yeah. and I would have a chance uh, to to learn about it. I would say that. Uh, of actual screening uh, for a film the first time, maybe one out of ten I would uh, be able to uh-huh. have it run for me, yeah, uh, and uh, the rest I would try to read what I could or, or to find out information, certainly a synopsis uh, to give me an idea of where it uh, was going. Mm. Uh, now, over a period of years, of course, there'd be repetition, and you'd find old friends yes. coming back that you that you knew. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and that was fun. But in putting together the idea of a, the perfect uh, accompanist, uh, um, improvisation has to be uh, part of it. I mean, the the process of of writing and scoring. Uh, At length, uh, is is substantial. It definitely is. And time consuming. And if you're playing regularly, it it doesn't leave as much time before that. Yeah. Uh,
1: How? I'm
2: I'm wondering how aware
1: you were when you were playing of the the audience, or just sensing the what I I call the vibe in the room. Because sometimes you you kind of feed off of that. Um, but I was wondering if that was something that that was part of your process also. Uh,
2: I was certainly. Uh, I, I mean, I was playing to the audience. Yeah. So any time that they could provide a little feedback, yeah. um, that would be uh, that would be very helpful. That this Harold Lloyd uh, joke, yeah. is really working. Mm. And part of it is uh, is uh, is the process of. Uh, of keeping one step ahead of them, I could read intertitles very quickly. Okay, so it's not and just before me. they before they got the joke yeah. if it was a if it was a written joke. Yeah. I had music waiting for a punch. Yeah,
1: I did the same thing, where I, I see the beginning of the phrase and I jump to the end, and then I'll go back to read the middle. But it's this, it's this and sometimes if it's it's a title that's actually funny, I will laugh about a second and a half <laughs> before the audience does. But that's interesting. This is something I, I find very much a part of film accompaniment is like what, what you're saying, the anticipation, and trying to know where this is going way before the audience does so that you're ready musically and you're, you're ahead of the game musically also.
2: That's right. Yeah. And it helps them uh, to enjoy the moment more and it helps you to hear that the feedback that it's happened as it should. If you're doing a good job and the film is doing a good job, um, there may be applause, a, hero, a heroic yeah. moment, yeah. or somebody wins a prize fight or yeah. something. The audience can get into that. Sure. And if it's a very tender moment, you sense that. I think you. I think you're always aware of what's happening in the room. Mm-hmm and uh, and the uh, the idea that uh, uh, that the audience is is getting this and you hope they they hope hope you are i had this little event happen that because i Occasionally you could feel full of yourself if you really played well. And I forget what the film was, but I, I, I had played very well. And there was a little group around the piano yeah. at the end saying, boy, we love that, what a great film, yeah. and we enjoyed your score. And, so on. and in the back of this little circular group was a lady It looked about 85 years old, a nice, gentle little lady, and she was trying to make her way through yeah. to talk to me. And finally, I felt sorry for her, so I just kind of moved her direction and, and said, "Yes, ma'am." And she said, "Mr. Perry, yes, yes. you play, play too loud." loud. <laughs> and she left. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, be be aware of the audience, oh no, especially at audience well, moments. Sure, sure.
1: You had mentioned
2: also, so you knew you got to know Lillian Gish. Well, well that that's a, uh, that's a very special part of my life. I I it, it was I called it the days of tea with Lillian. Uh-huh. She she lived on East fifty uh, seventh street mm-hmm. and it was a a rent controlled apartment that had belonged to her mother. So I told her the rent was about forty dollars a month okay, or shit. Yeah. At any rate, um uh, because she did uh, The That's Silent Years, and I later, uh, she was in uh, my Uncle Barry Finn production, so mm. we got to work through things, and she would invite me for tea, and... Um, And it was always very special. Sometimes she would just say, oh, I meant to show you this. She'd open a drawer in this lovely drawer. Enrico Caruso did that of me. It's nice, isn't it? And one day the phone rang, and she said, excuse me just a minute. Hello? Hello, dear, how are you? It's Mary. Hello, dear. Yes, I have a gentleman here. Mary Pickford, would you like to talk with her? Well... That, that kind of thing can really, really get to you. And she told anecdotes. There was one that, uh, that I re- remember vividly that in silent films you're always name-dropping, but it involved Rudolph Valentino, who asked Lillian, he said, I'm puzzled. I came over, I landscape gardener on Long Island and I got to dance and I'm pretty good and then make films but I don't understand why I'm famous I really don't Mm. I don't understand what it is and I wish I knew Mm. so she invited her friend who was the philosopher du jour of America H.L. Mencken to come up, and she put Mencken and Valentino in a room and closed the door and said, see if you can talk this through. (laughs) And And that's what happened, and Valentino came out, and he said, I I understand this. Wow. This better. Uh, Nobody quite knows what uh, happened in Lillian's love life. But Mencken is somebody that she... Spent time with over over a, a, a number of of years. Yeah. They went to political uh, conventions together. Oh my th- th- things, uh, things of that sort. Yeah. But she was uh, absolutely lovely in, in every way. Mm. Um, there were times when older years, uh, remembering lines was a, a little tricky, but but what Griffith had taught her, You'd get, get on a set, set and she, she said, Now, let, let me, let me see, see my key, my key light. Key light. Mm. And they'd hurry up to put the key light in place because she knew exactly how she could best be presented mm. facially sure. and so on. Yeah. And she had uh, had learned all of that. And she was a consummate uh, uh, film actress. Yeah,
0: yeah. As a palpable demonstration, of Mr. Perry's admiration for the artistry of Lillian Gish Here is an excerpt from his sweet silent film heroines, Lillian Gish, Orphans of the Storm. soloist Wallace Genta, accompanied by Paul Phillips conducting the RTE National Orchestra. Now on with conversation between Ben and William Perry.
1: I was wondering uh, during your, your time at MoMA, how uh, you found ways to expand your musical vocabulary, uh, and, and if, you, if you did at all, or if you just had your own uh, musical uh, canon, uh, as it were, that you would just play and, and, and draw from.
2: Well, uh, in, in preparing for a film, whether you'd screened it or not, if you knew what you were going to be expected to provide. For example, to play Blood and Sand, mm-hmm. you are going to be dealing with Spanish rhythms, Tarantino yes. dances in one scene, mm. and so preparing that. Means that you you grab some of the vocabulary that's going to work uh, for that film without using
1: recognizable music. Um,
2: with, yes, without yeah. recognizable, but yeah. putting on your own dance music yeah. that you've developed in a in a Spanish yeah. uh, style. Um, if it's a film that uh, took place in the Deep South, mm-hmm. uh, well, let's say Birth of a Nation, something of that sort, you wanted to make sure that uh, that you would have music perhaps uh, from real life mm. that could play in at, uh, at, at good places. Uh, the toughest thing, talking about preparation, is if you are asked to perform a film that you don't know, and it involves singing. Oh yes! And you get to it, and oh God, do I know this do song? Do I know this? What's he going to sing? Everybody's saying, "Oh, Charlie, will you sing for us?" Well, this is going to be something out of the twenties. Yeah. I don't know what it's going to be, yeah. but I better have some sense because <laughs> yeah. there may be some people here who know who it. Actually yeah. Actually, know it. That's uh, that's when you're uh, a little bit uh, a little bit scared. Yeah. Um, but um, the, um, when I talked about editing in King Vidor, the uh, flip side of that is the difficulty of playing for lots of the Griffith, Griffith films. He liked music, uh, but had, uh, you could tell, no sense of it. Mm. He, the, his editing, he, he may simply say, play the ride of the Valkyries here. And mm-hmm. the orchestra would have a certain amount of that. But it isn't something that I found worked very graciously for a for a pianist. Yeah, I think uh, a lot, of the like you're
1: mentioning, the, the edits, there isn't always a tidy wrapping up of a dramatic moment. They'll just cut to a title or cut to the next thing, and you're in the middle of a phrase. That's right. And... You have to make that work, and the transition into wherever we're going next.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. He'll just cut. So uh, uh, that that's always tricky. And when he gets into one of the big deals like intolerance, hmm. which I find probably the most difficult film that a pianist may be asked to do, he's got. All of this—it's oh, coming it's four, at you yeah. from so many different uh, directions. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you long for a director who had a, a musical sense yeah, because it—it yeah. uh, it, it shows in the cuts and the dissolves and and so on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah,
1: definitely. Uh, uh, I, th- I th- there's, there's a question just, you probably got at, at, asked a million times, and time that's one we all do: is do you have, have a favorite film? But I, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm interested in, in case, to, in case anyone's interested, to know yeah. if you have if favorite films to play. play uh, well, I'm also, I'm more well, interested, interested what made those favorite films, those films or are favorite genres or for you. Well,
2: um, I would say that I'm never tired of playing the crowd for example oh, gosh, yeah. because it is so so great mm-hmm. and so rewarding on every level um playing for the general mm. superb and the audience loves it. sure the, yeah. the gold rush mm-hmm. as uh, as a chaplain film that's going to uh, to work beautifully part of it is is what it does for you and for your uh, accompanying skill and part of it is knowing that you're going to have an audience that is appreciating this. That it's very helpful because they're sitting behind you and you, yeah. you want them to be friendly. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, so the those uh, are our films uh, that. Uh, I appreciate just as I say, intolerance is a film that I didn't have any tolerance for. <laughs> it's <laughs> four films, and then it's all four of them all at once, or three, yeah, yeah. or four. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. But there are there are things that uh, that had a special. Uh, nicety. I liked Marion Davies films mm. a lot. Yes. John Barrymore was somebody that always got got to me because I could be outrageous because he was being well, he outrageous. Was, yeah. So the beloved rogue, which has everything in it—torture and over the top oh. uh, love scenes and, and so on, um, including my favorite uh, moment. Uh, where uh, he's uh, asked for an extra drink of beer or something. Yes. And the uh, response is no, no, no and he says something, the title card says, oh, that's too bad. He said, son of a bitch. Oh, and you could oh, read it, oh, so it's very clear. It is his lips, it's I, very people. When that. people
1: ask me about, can, were they seeing the real lines in the film? And I tell that story, because he leans right into the camera in a, in a medium shot and goes,
2: Son of a bitch, very yeah. clearly, oh yes. yeah, <laughs> but a Barrymore film, Tempest, for example, mm. about the Russian Revolution yeah. and so on that's uh, uh, that's fun, fun to play, mm. uh, because uh, a certain amount of that uh, later, Errol Flynn, but earlier Barrymore, uh, over the topism you can you can have fun musically, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: As an example of a William Perry score with that great over-the-top quality for a John Barrymore film, here's a suite from his score for The Beloved Rogue. That was Michael Chertok on the piano with Paul Phillips conducting the RTE National Symphony in Music for Great Films of the Silent Era by William Perry. Now back to Mr. Perry's conversation with Ben. So one
1: One thing thing about about your work work that perhaps perhaps deviates a little little bit from from many of us who are film film accompanists is that at a certain certain point, point, you uh, stopped, stopped playing, playing at MoMA, and, and you moved on to, to other, other projects. projects. What, uh, what around, well, around what time? What year would that would have been, been? And what uh, I know you were, we were producing, producing television, television and, and there was, there was a, a musical music that you wrote as well.
2: Right. But the real reason that I I wanted to leave uh, was that I was. I was interested in having orchestral versions mm. of the films that I'd been playing, and uh, that opportunity um, was coming along, and I was starting to, to do that uh, writing. As a matter of fact, uh, while I'm a competent uh, pianist, uh, but not not beyond that competence. I I often was thinking orchestrally mm. whenever uh, whenever I was uh, playing the piano. And I got uh, terribly interested in those uh, uh, orchestras at the Capitol and uh, at the Roxy and, and Radio City. Um, Erno Rappé was a Hungarian conductor. Uh, who incidentally wrote two of the pieces. One is Charmaine and the other is Diane. Uh, But he conducted Radio City. And uh, he had a a fine orchestra there. What's not known to most people is that on Sunday mornings the orchestra played live on NBC. Mm. And he was uh, permitted to play anything that he wanted oh, wow. to do, and I was eleven years old, and he played all the Mahler symphonies mm. with the Radio City Music oh, Orchestra. Wow. Unbelievable that uh, that a <laughs> silent film orchestra could uh, could turn out that uh, that level yeah. of work.
1: Well, yeah, those people those were playing, playing six, seven, seven days, days a week. A week and they had you know chops on their chops and they were really amazing, <laughs> amazing musicians so and they had to read and sight read a lot of that but classical the and the and the mood music used. i mean yeah.
2: nowadays there is a little uh, effort uh, uh not a little i mean there are people writing their own scores and you you've been involved in this and sometimes uh uh, you may i don't know whether you do donald does sometimes add a percussionist yeah. or something to build the accompaniment a little little bit yeah. what an organ can do yeah. but um, the experience of going to a silent film presentation and in, and hearing a full symphonic orchestra yeah. playing for it it had to really do a, a lifting job
1: oh, de- oh definitely and i think a lot of people because the, a piano is a much more affordable and convenient instrument for television broadcast most people think that all silent movies were accompanied by a solo piano but like you're saying it was really it was a much more of an orchestral sound whether it was an orchestra of any size or organ
2: well this is of course and, and pre organ uh, it, it depended where you where you did. lived, well, yeah. uh, because a small town like Great Barrington would have a pianist, yeah, often yeah. a music teacher who did yeah, that yeah. as a separate job. Uh, when you got to Springfield, mm-hmm. you probably had a trio uh-huh. full time. Yeah. Maybe maybe five or six. By the time you got uh, to New York and oh, the big theaters, then they gave you the full orchestra. So it had to do with population. Sure, sure. As uh, as much as as anything else. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so
1: so the entire time when you were playing. The, your scores on piano at MoMA, and for the silent user, you're, you're still thinking orchestra. You're hearing those instruments in your head, and are you trying to mimic them, or just play figures that a trumpet or a cello might play, but on a piano?
2: Um, whatever the piano could uh, develop, if if it was a fanfare, the the opening of the beloved rogue uh, is uh, is uh, fanfares in fifths. Yeah. Well, you can do that on the piano. Sure. But to do it with a trumpet section is—it's is an actual it, trumpet it, section. Yeah. something again. So I, um, I couldn't help but think that this melody in in cellos yeah. someday uh, could be really very, uh, very special. Hmm when i came to write the uh, the the suite of the silent years with piano and orchestra i kept a lot of uh, action for the piano as a reminder that that was the basic instrument that most people heard for silent films and and give it its its real due and adoration uh, for the pianos yeah. that, uh, that did, the, uh, did that much, but then back it with strings and all, all that good, good stuff. Yeah, yeah sure, sure,
1: sure. So, so just for just the, for the, the chronology, chronology, so what, so what year, year did you, did you stop, stop working, working full-time, full-time at, at, at MoMA, and did you continue sporadically, sporadically playing, playing there, or was it was just, a, just stopping a stopping point?
2: point? Um, I didn't I take any outside... outside engagements. I was at MoMA for about 12 years. Okay. And uh starting in the very late 60s mm-hmm. and going through the going through the 70s. Um, there were no invitations to speak of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I it would do a special occasion maybe at the Smithsonian mm-hmm. in Washington sure. or something like that. But uh, the in, the invites from film societies, from uh, colleges and universities that seem to be pretty much a part of the action sure. these days. Yeah. Uh, I think you could spend a lot of time on the road and uh, yeah. get home once in a while. Yeah, once in a while, sure. Um, that really didn't ex- exist. Yeah. Uh, but the load, load at MoMA was heavier, Yeah. and they really, uh, because they were at th- in the uh, in the leading rank of institutions that were working on silent films, and they sure. could still talk to directors yeah. and uh, and had their own theater to screen the films and had the, and could and could do those uh, wonderful things, bring John Ford in, and, yeah. and, and people people like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because I know when I started playing in 1981, when I was at film school at NYU, you were still playing uh, at MoMA. You were still you were still there. Uh huh. Yeah. And then so do you know? Do you remember the year you stopped
2: playing at MoMA? What year well, it was? Yeah, it would have been about that uh, okay. about that time. Yeah. I was just thinking from a chronological yeah. point of view. Yeah. I'd done the silent years in '71 and '75. Mm-hmm. From '76 to '78, I was doing a poetry series called "Anyone for Tennis?" I remember that on public television. On public television, uh, public television. T- just talk briefly about what that show actually what that, what it was. Uh, yeah, and that was that was great fun because I I had all of the great actors Fonda and Lemon and and. And, uh, doing poetry uh, so readings, doing poetry mm. readings, mm. and and got to go to the Lake District of England and pueblos in in New Mexico mm-hmm. and so on. So I was, I was st- still involved, but I had substitutes doing playing for me. Sure. Um, Nineteen eighty to eighty six, I was doing a whole series of Mark Twain features. And these were for public television as well? These were for public television as well, but those were big budget uh, items, and uh, the Huckleberry Finn was a four-hour uh, Wow. And these uh, were things that you produced and scored, or were you directing? or Both. I wasn't directing, but I was executive producer and composer. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, I... Uh, I remember very, actually, the first, first film of that series was Life on the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, I wrote the score for it, and we recorded it with the St. Louis Symphony uh, with Leonard Slatkin oh. conducting. And uh, my director was, frankly, uh, quite frightened, oh. because as he told friends, the producer wants to write the music. Uh-huh. I'm doing all this work of the show and, and he, he, to, yeah. he he wants to yeah. He wants to write the score. Yeah. and uh, not
1: realizing yeah. who who, who he was talking, <laughs> talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, and
2: so um, we got to St. Louis. The orchestra came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and Leonard came out in the, in the audience. audience. It, wasn't it wasn't an audience; yeah. just a small group of people. Yeah. It was John Williams, by the way? Oh name. gosh! <laughs> and uh, the, and so um, the director was sitting, uh, looking yeah. quite, uh, quite upset and, and concerned, until the orchestra played. Suddenly this full sound mm-hmm. of a riverboat pulling out into the Mississippi and supported by a big theme and the full orchestra. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you could see a director breathing a huge <laughs> sigh of relief. And was this a, re- uh, a recording, recording session? What's yeah. yeah. happening? Oh, I see. Oh, oh gosh, yeah. He had not heard any, any of it. the oh, music, boy. and by the time we we finished the session, and it had been it's uh, very successful. Mm. Um, we were we were close partners, and he never questioned from that point on yeah, yeah, that the music would uh, would work yeah, with, yeah. with what we were doing. That performance of the theme,
0: Pilot on the Mississippi, from Life on the Mississippi, was performed by Paul Phillips conducting the Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra, available on the album, The Innocents Abroad, and other Mark Twain films.
2: This uh, latest recording, which is called uh, Toujours Provence, uh, because it has a lot of music. I vacation in, in Provence re- fairly regularly. And uh, one of one those, of those uh, is something that I hadn't gotten to do before. I, it's a piece called Swordplay, and it's based on my scores for The Three Musketeers and The Iron Mask. Uh, I always wanted to do a Fairbanks uh, thing, and that, swashbuckling yeah. type, type score and that was that was fun that's, fun. that's great
0: That was an excerpt from Swordplay, Paul Phillips conducting the Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra on the album Toujours Provence. Was it particularly was it satisfying, satisfying when you did begin working, working on,
1: on the orchestral versions of your, your Silent years, years themes to finally right, hear them the way would you had always imagined them in your head? Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: Immensely so. Yeah. And you did yeah. the and arrangements did you yourself? yourself? Uh, no, I had some uh, because, because I, I was doing so much. much. Uh, I had a, a couple of major uh, Broadway orchestrators who worked with me, oh. which is what the film composers traditionally sure. do anyway. Yeah. John Williams hands stuff to... An orchestrator, a, sure. A, a little cadre of mm-hmm. uh, of people there. So uh, that, that was uh, helpful. I would do usually a short score, which would have six staves. Uh-huh. uh So this is what the strings are playing, this is what the woodwinds, you, you decide which woodwinds, yeah. and you decide which brass. Is it going to be horns, muted trumpets, yeah. and so on. So that was uh, that was very good and very very helpful. Oh, great, yeah. And I've, uh, in any of the albums that I've done, I, I always have a paragraph of saluting orchestrators, that's very important these uh, people who for broadway shows would sit in the pit during rehearsals throwing new songs yeah. new new things we need another 12 measures for the dance yeah. throwing that stuff out yeah. yeah and they're not their
1: work is not that well known but
2: it, it isn't yeah. and they have to be so totally uh, versatile oh yeah definitely that's a,
0: Speaking of Broadway, here are two songs from the score of The Wind in the Willows for which William Perry wrote a Tony-nominated score. First is Nathan Lane, Vicki Lewis, and David Carroll singing That's What Friends Are For, followed by Evil Weasels, sung by P.J. Benjamin and Donna Drake. This is recorded at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in 1985. Fell in love with Dixie and formed a ragtime band. The Willis Sippy Stoppers were the finest in the land. But what the jazz fans didn't see as Cody played trombone was rat inside the bass drum winding up the gramophone. But that's what friends are for, friends who know the score. And
3: you're praying like a donkey because your singing isn't on key. Still you won't go wrong if you share the song and just
0: join in on the chorus with your friends. When Toadie took a ballet, my jumps were all the rage. We had to tie his tutu down to keep him on the stage. No partner could contain me for once I'd left my feet. It's lucky I was standing there to catch him in the street. But that's what friends are for, loyal to the core. Oh, remain enthusiastic when you trip the light fantastic. We are sure,
3: hooray, for your tour,
0: j'apay. You can dance the night away if you have friends.
3: Not the kind of puppy.
0: from the Broadway production Wind in the Willows, music by William Perry, lyrics by Roger McGough and William Perry, and orchestrated by William D. Brown. Now back to Ben and William Perry sharing some piano shop talk.
1: In the time after you were playing at MoMA, did you continue to play uh, piano
2: accompanying silent films at all? I really didn't. Once I left MoMA, only... If I, if I was, was doing uh, something that had more of a social value. For example, uh, great lovers of silent film, Adolph Green and Betty Condit. Oh, gosh, yes. And I was kind of their household... Accompany They would invite friends in. Oh. I played the crowd for them, oh, oh, for them. for
1: they would screen silent films at their home.
2: At their home. And, and, and you would you would play. And them. I would and I would uh, do the accompaniment. Oh wow! And I remember playing What Price Glory, mm. for example, for for them. Yeah. And so that sort of social uh, thing, yeah. uh, I I maintained. Uh, but not uh, not any performing not commercially oh, okay. uh, at all yeah i feel that i could uh, step in at, at any any moment okay. and uh, play for something mm-hmm. if it if it ever uh, ever were to happen but it uh, it was a very good chapter had a good ending mm-hmm. and uh, and it gives me such a high degree of satisfaction to see people like you and Donald and others that are doing this marvelous enterprise yeah. of making these films come alive and uh, t- showing people what a great art form it, it was and how how much it, it, it developed uh, the, the whole being of the film industry. Which now, which now is uh, when you see the the series that are shot in no time. And yes, and, and very quickly. Yeah. Nobody's working with shadows and chiaroscuro mm-hmm. and wonderful things that cinematographers did. They're just say your lines and move yeah. kind of thing, which is which is too bad. Yeah, but yeah, silent, silent film
1: I feel is almost a, a, not, so not so much so a genre, genre it, as a, it, it is a medium unto itself. itself, and I think and that. Okay. Uh, like uh, you were like saying, saying, that that the, the, role, the role of the, of the score, score and the, and the accompanist, accompanist, who is also who was composing, composing during the show, is and, is, is, and, a, is is a part of the film, film
3: the films, film's playing and the films, films the, experience the experience that the audience, audience
1: has, has with the film. <laughs> and you were a very big part of carrying that on for for people at a time when silent, silent film was really getting its its, its first due, you know, in, in a respectful way.
2: Yeah, and in the 60s, 60s, you, you, you still, still had, had directors, directors who came up, came up through the silent period, were active, mm. um, younger actors had become older actors, but they were still working, yeah. and very, very special to watch it happen, and to see Lily and Gish from the age of 10 to the age of 90 plus. yeah. So, that's a whole thing in itself
0: sure sure i think you've covered
2: yeah, I, pretty
1: much everything
2: i think we went over yeah. what an accompanist has yeah. um and um learning to move from key to key to key and and so on yeah. and there are a few little harmonic trips tricks yeah. about how to go from a dominant seventh chord into a uh, into a, a major yeah. key just uh, outside it. That it, it, suddenly it's, it's like, like daylight, and it's great for moments, yeah, moments yeah, like that. Yeah. But uh, you know every keyboard trick that uh, yeah. that is. That is. I'm always, I'm always discovering, discovering
1: new, ones new ones, and sometimes they'll happen. It'll, it'll. The expression it I have is that something will something come out of my hands,
2: hands. During, during a show, and show I'll think, think, "Oh, I can do, I can that, do that next, next, time, next time, time if I can remember <laughs> it." Right yeah, and you the trick when you play somewhere and the piano hasn't been tuned in your lifetime. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. That uh, sort of challenge uh, yeah, to, to, uh, remains, Yeah, too. to navigate around things that aren't behaving. The other thing <laughs> I would mention, because uh, if I had known this at the time I was recording uh, the CD of uh, Piano Alone, uh, which I recorded with R- at uh, RCA.
1: Oh, this is the Silent is Years uh, LP?
2: Yeah. I didn't realize at the time that I was playing on Rachmaninoff's personal piano. Oh, my. It's the one he had in his home in Riverdale. Oh. And uh, RCA had bought it. If I had known that when I was recording, I'd have left notes all over the floor. Yeah. and uh, And it did have... A little peculiarity, peculiarity. there was an octave just above middle C and F to F Mm -hmm. that had a little different texture. that I was aware Physically of. Physically or, or just the, the, the sound, sound of it? It didn't, it was it was the feel mm. of it as much as anything and it, it didn't impede me but it, I thought it was interesting and now I wonder if I looked through Rachmaninoff concertos uh, would there have been something in that octave that, yeah. that, that he lived he, in that octave he a He took lot, advantage of yeah. Well one thing for sure, I've got small hands. Oh me too. And I can't reach Rachmaninoff of course yeah i can I can get an octave, maybe a little bit more, but that's yeah, yeah i I can only do an octave yeah. and and a flashing group of of octaves yeah. <laughs> is, is, is tough for me yeah. yeah, it's been a very very happy part of my life, and as i say i'm I'm tremendously proud of those of you who are carrying it on, introducing it. To uh, to younger people who I'm sure would get caught up in it, and if they come to realize as an art form how how absolutely great it was, and how many wonderful films yeah were made yeah then yeah. yeah. then happiness everywhere yeah absolutely well thank you I think I
1: think that that's a great line to go out on
2: thanks so much Bill this was
1: really really, really wonderful. I hope you've enjoyed this two-part interview with William Perry, silent film accompanist and composer, filmmaker and producer. I want to thank Bill for letting me sit down with him to capture his stories and his thoughts on film scoring and on silent film accompaniment. I'm especially grateful to Bill for speaking with me back when I began accompanying silent films and for his friendship and many conversations about film scoring over so many years. This has been episode 52 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, and presenter working together with co-host and co-producer Kerr Lockhart.
0: Thanks, Ben. It's been a special joy to work on these two episodes and to help present William Perry's music to our audience.
1: I hope you'll go to my website, silentfilmmusic.com, where you'll see my performance and streaming schedule and where you can also sign up for my emails. Until next time, I'll see you at the silence.